should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon and welcome to today's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Hazen Jihu. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, founder of the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, and author of The Brief Candle in the Dark, My Life in Science. Dr. Dawkins was voted Prospects Magazine's number one world thinker and was on the Daily Telegraph's 100 Greatest Living Genius lists. He earned his degree in zoology and a doctorate in animal behavior from Oxford University and later returned to become the university's first sommelier professor for the public understanding of science. His best-selling books include The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, and The God Delusion, which have sold over two million copies and been translated into 30 languages worldwide. Over his esteemed career, Dr. Dawkins has won numerous awards and honors, including the Royal Society of Literature Award, the Galaxy British Book Awards Author of the Year, and the London Silver Medal, the International Cosmos Prize, and the Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest. Dr. Dawkins is Vice President of the British Humanist Association and a patron of the Oxford University Scientific Society and a Fellow of the Royal Society. Moderating today's program is Dr. Lynn Rothschild, astrobiologist and synthetic biologist at NASA Ames. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Richard Dawkins, Dr. Lynn Rothschild. Once I was um, interviewed by the journal Nature and I was asked who I'd most like to have dinner with and I admit that I said in print Benjamin Franklin because he was a scientist, inventor, revolutionary diplomat and well, a womanizer. But for a conversation there are few people that I would prefer to be on stage with than, than Richard Dawkins and this is again... How do you know I'm not a womanizer as well? <laughs> I, I did read that part of your autobiography, and I discreetly not mention that. <laughs> just, just saying. Which part? <laughs> um, and also a behavioral biologist, um, Richard Dawkins' uh, thesis was selective pecking of the domestic chick. So the chicken breeders in the audience might want to ask questions about that. Uh-uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but he has changed our very conception of evolution and the role of religion or not. As the case may be, you write with passion and eloquence, nothing I'm telling you, you don't know. Um, but for example, I was recently honored by sitting at a high table both at, at Cambridge, at Trinity College, and at Oxford and Oriel College, an experience that I've described repeatedly as exactly like Harry Potter except without the owls. In <laughs> contrast, Richard Dawkins put it much more eloquently. Could I ask you to read a little bit of, from your, your most recent biography? The quaint ceremony of formal dessert, a version of which is observed in most Oxbridge colleges and which I never liked takes place in a separate room after dinner where port and claret, sauterne and hock, have to pass clockwise around the circle and nuts, fruit and chocolates are handed round by the most junior fellows. New College, that's my college, has a curious contraption called the Port Railway, dating as you might expect from the 19th century, which is supposed to, and occasionally does, convey bottles and decanters by a pulley system across the gap in the circle, which is the fireplace. Snuff is also traditionally handed round, but seldom actually taken, at least since the days of one venerable and long-retired fellow, whose consequent prodigious sneezes would reverberate companionably around the oak panelling for the rest of the evening. I was the sub-warden at this time. Although the sub-warden doesn't have to seat people in their guests, as the presiding fellow does in some other colleges, he is expected to beam the role of genial host at dessert. I did my best, but there was one awkward evening. As I was helping people to find their seats, I became aware from a sort of ominous rumbling that all was not well. Sir Michael Dummett, immensely distinguished philosopher, Wickham Professor of Logic, in succession to Freddie Eyre, stickler for grammar, conscientious and passionate campaigner against racism, world authority on card games and voting theory, was also famously choleric. When angered, he would go even more than usually white, which somehow seemed, although this may be my fevered imagination, to make his eyes glow a menacing red. Pretty terrifying, and it was my duty as sub-warden to try to sort out whatever the problem was. The rumble grew to a roar. I've never been so insulted in my life. You have the most atrocious manners. You obviously must be an Etonian. Uh, that means from Eton, which is one of Britain, indeed is England's foremost private school. The target of this damning sally was not me, thank goodness, but our quirkily brilliant classical historian, Robin Lane Fox. Robin was hopping with anxiety and bewildered apology. But what have I done? What have I done? I didn't immediately succeed in discovering what the problem was, but in my hostly role, I saw to it that the two of them were seated as far from each other as possible. I later learned the full story. It had begun at lunchtime that day. Lunch is an informal self-service meal and fellows sit where they like, although it is conventional to fill up the tables in order. Robin noticed that her new fellow was hesitantly looking for a place. He courteously motioned her to sit, but unfortunately the chair he indicated was the very chair for which Sir Michael was heading himself. The perceived slight rankled, simmered up through the afternoon, and finally boiled over after dinner at dessert. The story had a happier ending, as Robin told me when I asked him recently. A couple of days after that distressing incident, he was approached by Professor Dummett, who offered the most gracious apology, saying that there was nobody in the college whom he would less wish to insult than Robin. Thank goodness I was never the target of his ire, although I might have been vulnerable 
as he was a devout Roman Catholic with the zeal of the convert. Just a little bit more here. I have great affection for New College and for many friends made there over years. I feel pretty sure I'd say the same if the role of the dice had placed me in another college, or indeed a Cambridge college, for these very similar institutions are wonderful places, mixing scholars in different subjects, but sharing the same academic and ed ed educational values. Values from which I like to think the students benefit. Quirky individuality nevertheless abounds, and Oxbridge colleges are famously hard to govern, as many an incoming head from the big world outside has discovered. Yes, we have our share of scholarly prima donnas, clever but not necessarily as clever as their vanity persuades them. And we have the, the reverse, a scholar so lacking in vanity as laughingly to tell at lunch a story like this against himself. I was telephoned by the student newspaper today. Dr. So-and-so, have you any comment on the fact that in your lecture this morning, one of the students yawned so vigorously that he dislocated his jaw as it happens, the same student newspaper once telephoned me when it was doing a survey of DOMS, that means university professors, to see how cool we were. The student reporter put to me a list of questions to assess my street cred, such as, what is the price of a packet of Durex? And then, what is the price of a Big Mac? To which, in my naivety, I replied, oh, about 2,000 pounds with a color screen. He was laughing too much to continue the interview and put the phone down. <laughs> so appropriate as we are deep in Macintosh territory. Yes. In, oh, right. right. Good point. I've always been a loyal Macintosh man. Excellent. Well, we can pretty much end there. <laughs> um, the, the 18th century theologian um, William Paley used the argument from complex used the argument from complexity um, as an argument for the the existence of a creator, um, which you famously responded to in the Blind Watchmaker. Could you discuss that? Please? Yes, um, William Paley wrote a book called Natural Theology. I think it was published in 1802, uh, where he begins by imagining walking across a heath and stubbing your toe on a stone. You pick up the stone and you reckon it's just a stone, there's no, nothing very special there. But if you then stub your toe on a watch, and you pick up the watch and you open it, and you'd see all sorts of complicated cogs and gears and springs and things, and you recognize that it was obviously made for a purpose. Um, and, and he's obviously then going on to make the analogy with a living creature, an eye he goes on to. The, if the watch is obviously designed for a purpose, how much more so, he said, was the eye. Um, so this watchmaker argument, I mean, it's an old argument, obviously, Paley wasn't the first to use it, but he used the analogy of the watch. Um, so my book, The Blind Watchmaker, is about natural selection. Natural selection is the watchmaker of life, but it's the blind watchmaker. It has no foresight, it has no design, it just happens through the laws of physics. It has no ability to look into the future and plan ahead the way uh, a, a human engineer would. And so it's blind in that sense as, as well. So The Blind Watchmaker is a book about Darwinian natural selection and the refutation of the argument from design. Since we're in Silicon Valley and full of people who do elevator pitches all the time, I was wondering if you could do an elevator pitch for evolution. 
that, that means that in the time it takes to get from... from exactly. Okay, H how many stories have I get? Do I get the Empire State? <laughs> <laughs> um, Indeed. Uh, right. Um, every living creature is descended from an unbroken line of successful ancestors, not a single one of whom died young, not a single one of whom failed to achieve at least one heterosexual copulation. That defines them as, a, that's a necessary qualification of an ancestor. Millions of their rivals failed to achieve that, failed, in most cases, failed to live long enough uh, to reproduce. The genes that equipped them to be good at becoming ancestors, and there's a lot wrapped up in that. It means surviving, it means uh, attracting a mate, it means reproducing, it means being good at being a parent, all that sort of thing. The genes that equipped every one of your ancestors to be good at surviving, doing whatever they did, whether it was walking or running or jumping through the trees or burrowing or swimming, the genes that equipped them to be good at it have come down to you. And by you, I mean kangaroos and warthogs and, and snakes and every living, living creature. So every living creature has inherited the genes for being a successful ancestor. That means good at surviving and good at reproducing. And that's why we're all, all us animals and plants, are so good at doing it. Brilliant. I, I, I think you've gotten the investment. Um, you said in, on page, 294 from the unauthorized edition, um, that if St. Peter were to twist my arm at the pearly gates and force me to come up with an answer to the question of how, if at all, I might justify having occupied a little space on this earth and exchanged a fraction of its air, the best I could do would be to point to the extended phenotype. Could you talk about that? Well, I'd assume that St. Peter had good taste and, <laughs> and, was, um, uh, and was interested in science. Presumably after he asked for your autograph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, okay, the extended phenotype. Well. Um, the genes that make animals good at surviving uh, do so by influencing embryological processes and uh, making the body of the animal good at doing what it does. So making good wings, good feet, good teeth, good eyes, good ears, good kneecaps, and so on. Um, that's a normal phenotype. The extended phenotype is the same thing in the sense that it's a tool for levering genes into the next generation. But the extended phenotype is outside the body in which the gene sits. A simple and obvious example would be something like a bird's nest. The bird's nest is clearly an organ for gene survival. It's, it's a house for the eggs. Uh, and so it's just an organ like any other. It's a phenotype like any other. Uh, there must be genes for it because natural selection can only work on phenotypes whose variation is controlled by variation in genes. So the nest is a phenotype, a genetically controlled phenotype, but it's not part of the bird's body. It's made of grass or mud or whatever it is. So that's a, 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 the first example of an extended phenotype. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Once you've bought that, I can then say, well, imagine a parasite that's sitting inside its host. And the parasite influences the host to its own advantage and probably to the host's disadvantage. A fluke in an ant influences the ant to make it more likely to be eaten by a sheep, which is the next stage in the life cycle of the fluke, the little worm. What it does is it burrows into the brain of the ant and makes a lesion in the brain of the ant which causes the ant to depart from the normal thing it would do in the middle of the day, which is to go down underground, and instead to climb to the top of grass stems, where it's vulnerable to being eaten by a sheep. So the behavior of the ant is manipulated by the fluke. Because it's clearly a Darwinian adaptation, that must mean that there are genes for doing it. There are genes for burrowing into the brain of the ant, but the actual phenotype which mediates the survival of the gene is the changed behavior of the ant. So the changed behavior of the ant is extended phenotype of genes in the fluke. Once again, we have genes that are inside one body, reaching out of the body and influencing a phenotype outside that body. Well, if you buy that, then the next step would be to point to a parasite that doesn't actually live inside its host, such as a cuckoo. A cuckoo nestling sits in the nest of another species. It might be a robin, it might be a reed warbler, and influences the behavior of the foster parent in all sorts of remarkable, extraordinary ways. Uh, this is manipulation of the behavior of the, of the host. And uh, it's almost as though the, uh, the, the cuckoo is a kind of drug it's actually been called a drug by one German researcher, an intoxicant of the host. The host is addicted to feeding this monstrous, it's often much, much larger than its foster parent. Any fool can see that this is not a baby reed warbler or a baby robin, this is clearly a, a, a monster, it's a cuckoo in the nest. But once again, the behavior of the host is extended phenotype of cuckoo genes because it's a Darwinian adaptation, that means that its the genes have been selected by virtue of their phenotypic effects on the world, and this is, in this case, phenotypic effects on the, on the host. Better stop there. It's marvelous. As you were speaking about the nest, though, it, it made me think that what you're really talking about is, in this case, bird technology. So, how do you figure in, for example, human technology? Right. Um, I, I would not wish to call that extended phenotype, and I'll tell you why. Um, if you think about um, a, a building like a cathedral or, or a, a, 
a, a skyscraper or a bridge or something like that. Um, it, it is the creation, it, it's the design of a human architect. And so you might say, well, why isn't that extended phenotype in the same way as a bird's nest is? The, the, the reason is that there are not genes for phenotypic effects. There are not genes for Gothic arches. There are not genes for, for um, Baroque architraves and, and um, suspension bridges and things. Um, there probably are genes for good architects versus bad architects. I wouldn't be at all surprised at that. There might well be genes that make a person good at visualizing three-dimensional structures or something of that kind, like Francis Crick. Um, but you, you couldn't say, in the same way as you certainly could say that there are genes for bird's nest of a certain shape. I don't think you could ever say there are genes for cathedrals of a certain shape or bridges of a certain shape. So I don't want to call that extended phenotype. Similarly, you're, you're implying that, that poor architects have been lost along the way due to natural selection as their buildings collapse. Yes, yes. <laughs> if they're inside the building at the time, but they're probably not. <laughs> With a little luck. Um, I think we could argue that to some extent, the United Kingdom is ground zero for evolutionary biology. But we like to think in our area that we are ground zero for astrobiology, which I'd like to argue is, is really the next great revolution after the Darwinian revolution, because asking questions about where would we come from, where are we going, and are we alone, takes evolutionary biology away from being very Earth-centric and asks it as a more general principle. I was wondering if you could comment on that. That's a fascinating question. I mean. Uh, we, we only have one sample of life. Life on this planet, as we know it, is clearly a single sample. Uh, the machine code of life, the, the, the interaction between DNA and protein is universal. The DNA code is universal, all but universal. Uh, so we don't know how different life could possibly be. I am fascinated to ask that question. It would be lovely to discover another life form. Uh, people hope to find it on Mars. I'm pretty skeptical of that. Um, but it, the, the, the moment a second life form is found, we shall immediately know how much, or to a large extent, we'll, we'll, we'll know to what extent the things that are true of life on this planet had to be true, because there's no other way for life to be, and to what extent they just happen to be true. For example, uh, life on this planet is Darwinian life. Is that universal? Well, I'm putting my shirt on the answer yes to that question. D uh, life anywhere in the universe, if it exists elsewhere, will be Darwinian life. Does it have to have genes? Again, I'd put my shirt on yes. Um, do the genes have to be digital? DNA is highly digital. It's exactly like computer. It, 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 DNA molecular genetics is just a branch of computer science nowadays. I suspect it does have to be digital because it has to be high fidelity. And you don't get high fidelity uh, without uh, digital coding. Um, does there have to be sex? Probably not, because not all living creatures do that. Uh, but that's another interesting question. Um, would you expect to find it, would it, does it have to be organic chemistry? Does it have to be carbon chemistry? Uh, I'm not enough of a chemist to pronounce on that. I asked Harry Croto, the, one, a Nobel Prize winning organic chemist, and he definitely would put his shirt on it having to be organic. It's only carbon among, the, among all the elements. Only carbon has the necessary 
properties. Does it have to be based on protein? Uh, protein is a, a remarkable family of organic compounds, uh, remarkable in that the three-dimensional shape of a protein molecule, the three-dimensional shape into which it ties itself into a knot, its three-dimensional structure, makes it into an enzyme, a catalyst, for a very particular chemical reaction. And the whole of life's chemistry is based upon the ultra-high speci specificity of protein catalysis. So does life everywhere in the universe depend upon protein? Probably not, but it, it's a good bet that, that, it, that it's quite, quite likely. Um, does the, does the genetic code have to be DNA? Again, probably not, uh, but it, I think it would have to be digital. Those are all the kinds of questions which I presume you astrobiologists are Absolutely, talking. and I, I'll just show my hand that I'm actually rather bullish on protein because our colleagues um, at NASA Ames and Leiden and so on have actually found amino acids in the interstellar medium and so yes, on. Yes, I know, it, that's very exciting. It's amazing, yes. which you know, leaves me with the, the unsettling idea that the students maybe orbiting Alpha Centauri, maybe reading the same biochem books we are yes. in Alpha Centauri. I mean, whenever I meet a biochemist, I always ask them to speculate about this, and they're very boring. They don't bother to do so. It's, so it's nice to meet an astrobiologist who actually oh, please does, do, does do that. Um, that thing about um, these organic compounds being in space already, we know this from meteorites, um, which what it means is that the famous experiment done by Stanley Miller, where you've probably heard of this, where um, he put what were thought to be the sort of ingredients of the early Earth atmosphere uh, into, into a simple chemical apparatus and struck sparks through it and bubbled and did a bit of double, double toil and trouble with it and um, got uh, a whole lot of organic molecules of the sort you would wish to get, uh, amino acids and, and um, nucleotides and things like that. He didn't need to bother because now all those things have been found in meteorites. They're, they're ubiquitous in, in space. So the Miller experiment, interesting as it was at the time, was actually superfluous. But fascinating nonetheless. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and do you promise you'll be back when we do find another life form? Oh, yeah. yeah. Although I, I suspect we may create one in the lab before then. Well, that's an interesting thought that, that you might, I mean, another line of research in, yeah. in this general area. Can you devise in the lab a completely different kind of life? Um, and so far, I think people are only devising DNA-based life, where they control the, the, the um, sequence of the, of the DNA. But uh, it would be interesting to try to make a form of life that's not based on, on DNA. Do you think that, that's on the, in the or, cards? Or RNA. I'm assuming we yes. say DNA. Yes. RNA. Yeah. I think it's quite possible. Yeah. <laughs> I won't show my hand on my next grant proposal, but I okay. do definitely okay. think it's quite possible. Good. Right. Excellent. Mm. Um, I was wondering if we take a break from, from evolutionary biology and astrobiology for just a moment and let you read your favorite passage from your book. Oh, gosh. I'm, I know about my favorite passage. Let me try and find... Um, and, and even the one that I, I nixed before, that would be... Um, well, perhaps uh, one about your distant cousin... Miriam Rothschild. Absolutely. Um, Note to audience, no relationship. <laughs> Miriam Rothschild is a, I wonder where I can find it. Um, here we are. Um, she's a uh, 
wonderful old lady. She's just died quite recently, um, and a, a very distinguished biologist, uh, and very, very rich, of course. Um, uh, I didn't know Miriam well, but so remarkable a character demands a digression. She used to invite Lala, that's my wife, and me to her annual dragonfly party, so-called because guests were encouraged to view the dragonfly conservation measures around her lake at her country house at Ashton near Arundel, where I'd earlier been at boarding school. Her garden was something to behold. There is a coffee table book, The New English Woman's Garden, in which each double-page spread is devoted to the garden of some high-born or well-connected lady. The pages glow with immaculate lawns shaded by immemorial cedars, tastefully understated flower beds, herbaceous borders, shady arbors, and ancient brooding yew alleys. All is as expected until you turn the page to the garden of the Honorable Miriam Rothschild. They could have left off the Honorable and replaced it with FRS, that's Fellow of the Royal Society, which is equivalent to uh, Fellow of the National Academy of Sciences. But that would have been out of the book's character. Her garden was stylishly her own. The plants were all such as the other ladies would have called weeds. They consisted entirely of wild English meadow flowers and unmown grasses. Waves of flower-decked long grass buffeted the walls of the house and crashed through the windows into the interior window boxes, which therefore looked like an indoor continuation of the garden. The large house itself was so smothered in creepers you almost needed a machete to find it, like a fairy tale castle in an enchanted forest. Under faded family photographs, including one of the bowler-hatted and full-bearded second Lord Rothschild driving through London in his coach pulled by four zebras, with the cases containing the celebrated Rothschild insect collections. The luncheons themselves were sumptuous buffets. At one of these annual dragonfly bashes, she beckoned me over to her table. Come and sit by me, dear boy, but first go and carve me a slice of venison. A very small slice, mind you, I'm a strict vegetarian. <laughs> to be fair, the deer had not been killed for food, but had died of an accident, so you could say that her vegetarian principles were being upheld in the spirit, if not the flesh. Miriam owned a herd of rare Pear David's deer brought back from China by her father with a view to conserving the species. They are extinct in the wild. One of these deer had unfortunately got itself entangled in a fence and died. Hence the venison on the ethical buffet table. Miriam was once invited to give the prestigious annual Herbert Spencer lecture in Oxford. The vice-chancellor and dignitaries were all seated in the front row of Christopher Wren's magnificent Sheldonian theater. They had probably, been, they had probably processed in, begowned, mortarboarded up, and heralded by the beadle with his mace, although I don't strictly remember that detail and may have embellished it. Miriam's lecture itself I remember well. It turned out to be a heartfelt plea for animal rights and a passionate denunciation of meat-eating. I was seated immediately behind the vice-chancellor and noticed him begin to shift visibly in his seat with anxiety as the lecture progressed. Then I saw a note being passed discreetly along the row, and an aide hustled out, doubtless running hot foot to the college kitchen, where they were busy preparing the post-lecture dinner that the vice-chancellor was to host in Miriam's honor. You'd think she might have given his office warning in advance 
but I suspect her sense of mischief took over. <laughs> this is the 30th anniversary, is it this year or last year, of the selfish gene? It's I think it's soon. 40th. 40th. Yes. The, the selfish gene, I believe, was the same year as the Viking missions, just to, so that we can calibrate for the NASA people in the audience. It's 76. Well, that's memorable. Good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. mm. There yes. were a few other events in the United yes. States at the time. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. But I'm sort of fascinated with all the modern advances in molecular biology. Do you have a, a different view? Would you have written a different book? Because it seems like we now have increasing evidence of genes, in fact, being selfish rather than the genome as That's a right. I mean, I, it, in a way, I'd like to say that I would write it totally differently because scientists love the idea of saying they're wrong. It's one of the ways scientists get prestige, unlike politicians who can't for one moment <laughs> admit to being wrong. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think I am wrong. Um, I think it's pretty much right. Although, as you say, in, in a way we now know um, there are many more examples of what, can you, can, what you can call ultra-selfish genes. For me, the selfish gene is, is really any gene um, because it is selfish in the sense that it's competing with its alleles, uh, but, but actually cooperating with all the other genes in the genome. But ultra-selfish genes are actually criminal genes. They're 
things like uh, segregation distorters. You know that um, that w when you when you make a a sperm, half the sperms you make are X sperms, and half the sperms you make are Y sperms. And so, if it's an X sperm that's, that that fuses with the egg, you get a girl, and if it's a Y sperm, you get a boy. And it's it's fifty-fifty. There's equal numbers of X sperms and Y sperms, but there are genes called there's a, that there are genes called segregation distorters, which distort that equal ratio. Uh, for example, there are driving uh, Y genes, which um, which when they get on a Y chromosome, they cause the male concern to produce more than 50% Y sperms. So such a male will, will produce more than a 50% probability of having a son rather than a daughter. So the driving Y will spread through the population at a cost of the population. It, it has an advantage, but it is ultimately destructive. It's a kind of cancer of the uh, evolutionary cancer of the genome. Um, and there are now lots of examples of ultra-selfish genes. Ro Robert Trivers, the great evolutionary theorist, has written a, uh, a whole book ab about um, what he calls selfish genes. I would call ultra-selfish genes. Um, so th this is, this is uh, music to my ears. I mean, this is, this is exactly the sort of thing I would have predicted and did predict, actually. I'm sure you're familiar with the Turing test, yes. where you don't know whether you're, you're speaking to a computer or, or a person. So could you imagine a Dawkins test, where we have another form of life and you can't tell whether it's Earth or not? Whether, how, how do you tell whether something's alive or not? Huh. That's one I've never had before. Um, thank it's you. It's one I get all the time. That's why I'm asking okay, you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Right, so we, I mean, the, 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 the Turing test is just as an, an analogy, so I, I, I won't talk about that, although it, it, although it is very interesting. Um, I think that we don't need a hard and fast definition of life, just as we don't need a hard and fast definition of when, in the development of an embryo, it becomes human. I mean, many people who are interested in the abortion controversy, are obsessed with the question, at what point does it become human? Well, there isn't any point where it becomes human. It's a gradual process. And the same is true in the evolution of humanity. Um, there, there was never a moment when a pair of homo erectus parents gazed lovingly into their bracken cradle and, and said, we've just given birth to the first homo sapiens. <laughs> It didn't happen like that. There never, was, there never was a first Homo sapiens. There never was a first member of the genus Homo. Um, and I, in the same way, I don't think... Well, but, I mean, every animal ever born was the same species as its parents and its children. And yet, if you have a string enough generations end to end, going back in time, you, you come to fish and worms and, and monkeys and things like that. Um, so I don't think we need a definition of, of the moment when life started. But uh, as an astrobiologist, you want to know whether what you've discovered on a planet is... Right. Are we on the front page of the New York Times? Are you in the, the front second? page of the New York Times? Um, well, if, if, it's, if it's obviously dripping with design, if it's obviously working to preserve itself 
and preferably doing something interesting like flying or swimming, then there's no problem, there's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, or if it's, if it's clearly an artifact, if, it, if it's a machine that's been made by such a creature, that so, would be so another. So technology is a biosignature. Exactly. Um, but if it's a sort of pre-bacterial form, then uh, I think my, the Dawkins test for me would be, um, does, it have ge does it have genes? Does it have se a self-replicating code which uh, determines it, its phenotype? And I'd be very excited by that. I, I, I think that the newspapers might prefer it if it had arms and legs and, <laughs> and a television aerial sticking out of its head. It's, as you know, the SETI Institute is in the area here. And um, you, you do realize that they define intelligence as the ability to make a radio transmitter. So I'm, I'm very securely on the side of the unintelligence. So it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> well, I think SETI is very interesting. I mean, I think, I think it's. It's, it's not that expensive, and I think it's worth spending money on because it's a long shot, but it's a long shot that's, that, that's worth pursuing. So you're very excited about the, the recent um, push then, the announcement of the Royal Society about the new SETI program? Well, I mean, I, I, I am a strong supporter of, of SETI, yes. Thank you. Um, I, I, I can't help but seguing into um, Quote, Stephen Jay Gould, of course, famously said that, that science and religion were non-overlapping magisteria, something that I think you've been unhappy with, and I was wondering if you could discuss it. He had a genius for getting things wrong and saying it in a very eloquent way. Um, a beautiful writer, elegant writer, um, and, and very, very frequently wrong. Um, Noma, non-overlapping magisteria, science and religion are about totally different things. Uh, science is about the age of rocks and religion is about the rock of ages. Uh, <laughs> science is about the how of things, religion is about the why of things. Um, religion, he, he wants to hand over to religion morality, questions about what's right and wrong, and the deep questions of existence. What's it all about? What's it all for? Um, I am prepared to agree that science may not be able to answer those questions. But if science can't answer them, sure as hell religion can't. Um, maybe, no, maybe nobody can. Uh, moreover, it's just in untrue to say that religion keeps off science's turf. I mean, if, if religion had absolutely nothing to say about the reality of the universe, um, if, the, if religion was so hands-off that, hypothetically, suppose somebody were to discover by some magnificent DNA testing or something like that, that Jesus really was born of a virgin, um, can you imagine theologians saying, oh, no, that's not quite irrelevant. Um, this is a scientific finding, absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, Non-overlapping magisteria. Um, uh, uh, they'd be blaring it from the rooftops. I mean, it would be, um, and, and of course they do. I mean, they're con constantly um, interfering in scientific matters, sometimes in a very costly way, like um, uh, putting bans on stem cell research. 
and, and, and that kind of thing. So now I, I think that's probably Gould's worst book. Uh, and um, I, could see a, a, I can see a good political reason for writing it because um, for political reasons, those are my colleagues in evolutionary biology who want to uh, foster the teaching of evolution in American schools uh, need to get sort of sensible religious people on their side to fight a common cause against the creationist nutcases. Um, and so that there's every reason for reaching out in a, in a, a conciliatory, seductive way to sensible religious people. And I think that's probably what he was doing. Uh, um, I'm not sure how, whether he really believed what he was saying. It's quite interesting. As you probably know, there are a fair number of, of biotechnologists, synthetic biologists, and companies in the area. And my understanding is that when the DNA synthesis and um, sequencing companies get a sequence that they can't quite wrap their minds around or is more related to Ebola and so on than they'd like, they then do send information to the FBI. So as you're saying that, I could just imagine the sequences they show that, that Jesus was born of a, of a virgin. Oh no, you know, as you alert the FBI at this amazing finding. Yes. Anyway, you yeah. Finish the, that's for your next autobiography, I imagine. <laughs> so I've often been told by mutual friends of ours in the Catholic Church that it takes faith to be an atheist. How would you respond to that? Uh, it, well, that's just wrong, isn't it? I mean, um, it because, because, I mean, an atheist is not, is not saying positively, I know there is no God. The, the, the onus is on people who want to believe in leprechauns or Thor or, or Yahweh, uh, the onus is on them to find the evidence. You don't need faith to be uh, an atheist. You just simply need, uh, well, skepticism and um, Occam's razor-style economy. Um, we're going to turn to a few questions from the audience. Okay, right. And I have a feeling they're all going to start the same way. First, I'm a big fan, so we'll just say that every question is prefaced that way. <laughs> Um, thank you for your life's work so far. You're known for an aggressive, no apologies atheism. Others take a kinder, gentler approach. How do you feel about this? Well, has this been successful? I think the God delusion is actually rather a kind and gentle book. Um, <laughs> the, the, there is there is one there is one paragraph at the beginning of chapter two, which is. Um, uh, which, which is sort of meant to get a laugh, really. It's, it's, um, it, it says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Um, and then goes on with a, a list of about 20 adjectives, uh, uh, bloodthirsty, um, jealous, um, monomaniacal, uh, um, pestilential, uh, homophobic, racist, uh, misogynistic, etc., etc., um, all of which are amply demonstrated, at least from the Old Testament and to some extent from the, from the New Testament. Um, Dan Barker, who's a very interesting character, it, um, it lives in Wisconsin and used to be a preacher, a, a really sort of an evangelical preacher, and he um, became an atheist and now runs the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which is an admirable organization together with his wife. Um, he has just written, just finished a book, it's about to be published, which is called, I think, The Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. 
And what he's done in this book is to take each one of my adjectives from the beginning of chapter two of The God Delusion, and each one of those adjectives is a chapter heading of his book. And the chapter consists of massive documentation of just that adjective, um, all the biblical verses that demonstrate it, plus his, his own expert commentary. But apart from that one paragraph, um, it is a, a gentle book. Um, it begins with uh, a story about a, the, a chaplain at my old school and how he was lying in the grass with his face in the grass and he had a sort of vision of these becoming one with the universe while he was looking at these intricate world of the grass stems and things. And um, I go on to describe with great affection how he had been a in, in the war, he'd been in the Royal Air Force, and how we used to try to distract him in divinity and scripture lessons by asking him to reminisce about his wartime service. Uh, and I quoted affectionately again John Betjeman's poem, which goes, Our padre is an old sky pilot. Severely now they've clipped his wings but still the flagstaff in the rectory garden points to higher things. And then I go on to say that, and quote that in the, in the latest book, Brief Candle in the Dark, and then say to my delight, I received, my, my website, richarddawkins.net, received a letter from an, another old boy of the same school who sent in this little verse. I knew your flying chaplain as my housemaster, I oughter. While you embraced his liberal views, I just embraced his daughter. <laughs> so the, the, the book is, is, a, is, a, is a genial, humorous, um, aff affectionate book with a few exceptions and a few satirical asides. Um, I don't think anybody who actually knows me thinks I'm aggressive or arrogant or strident or shrill or what are the other things that I'm supposed to be. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. This, Bennett, might be an excellent question for you. It's, it's signed from a struggling PhD student. How do you deal with difficult people in science, since now we know you're not one? Huh. Um, well, I think you stand up to them. Um, there's, a, there's an anecdote in, in the book by um, the great John Maynard Smith, the late great John Maynard Smith, about his own mentor, J.B.S. Haldane, one of the most celebrated biologists of the 20th century. And J.B.S. Haldane was famously difficult. He was impossibly difficult. His room became absolutely filthy because the cleaners were too terrified of him to venture in, in there. Uh, and he had this formidable reputation for, for anger. 
Um, and John Maynard Smith was one of the few people who, who really got on well with him. And he did it simply by, by standing up to him. And Haldane respected that. So that's, that's one way. Um, what other sorts of difficult people? I think there are difficult people who are not generous. I'm, Haldane was extremely generous. Haldane never tried to claim anybody else's work as his own. He was always just interested in the work. But there are people in science who uh, are possessive of their students' work and even jealous of their students and always like to put their name on their students' papers even if they didn't really contribute very much to it. Uh, and I think that's reprehensible. And, and um, uh, I think if you have a supervisor who does that, get a better supervisor. Um, I may think of something later. Absolutely. We should have time. As you probably know, we're in the middle of one of our perpetual election seasons. And no, so that's this, next year. <laughs> it's already started. You can get out your letters <laughs> now. So um, I think this is particularly relevant. Someone asks, how would you suggest lay people of America, not scientists or politicians, counteract the rampant anti-science views that seem to be popular among some politicians? It, it is remarkable how, I mean, I presume that politicians aren't necessarily reflecting their own views, but are reflecting the views that they think their constituents hold. And so um, there is an anti-science feeling, uh, I think, in American politics. Uh, it shows itself in hostility to the idea of um, man-made climate change. Uh, and it shows itself in hostility to my own subject of evolution. Um, and I don't quite understand why they are so convinced that they are gaining votes by uh, portraying themselves as ignorant idiots. <laughs> but it, it, it does seem that they have very largely bought into the myth that the American electorate is of that persuasion. Um, I think we, we, I would, I'm not American, so don't let me sound too presumptuous here. I would like to see the American electorate teaching their um, electoral candidates that the American ele electorate is not stupid and ignorant and uh, is not persuadable in this kind of way. Um, if they think they're gaining votes by saying that the world is but is less than 10,000 years old, and Darwin was inspired by the adversary. You read that recently? Ben Carson, a leading Republican candidate, thinks both those things, thinks that, that Darwin was inspired by Satan. Um, it should be a joke that any presidential candidate could publicly display s such crass ignorance of science. And I suspect that they only do it because they think they're gaining votes. I think it's up to the American electorate to show them that they're not gaining votes. They may, they're losing more votes than they, than they gain. So write to your Congress people, um, um, make a noise would be my advice on that. What? We'll be hosting the Dawkins for President booth out back. <laughs> we noticed that although you are not an American, that you did spend two to three years at Berkeley, which pretty much makes you a native Californian. I believe it's only one year residency in the state. 
Um, I think that there is a lot of um, interest in what comes next, and I know you speak about that in your book, that we, the first generation of life on, on planet Earth, are made of meat, but our second generation, our successors, could be made of silicon. Yes, uh, this is a fascinating possibility. We're already, um, if, 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 if we are visited from outer space by other life forms, which we won't be, um, we'll be visited by radio waves long before any bodies come here. Um, what they would notice very likely would be our artifacts, the things that we make. Um, and among these are computers, and it is perfectly, not perfectly, it is slightly plausible that life may move out of carbon into, into silicon, as, as you say. Um, if you get uh, machines, computers, robots, which are capable of duplicating, of reproducing themselves. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be impossible. I mean, Do you find that a scary or exciting possibility? Well, it, I, um, I, I think a lot of people find it very scary. Uh, it, it would be scary if you, if you would mourn the loss of us soft, squishy, wet things. Um, and, and I think I would. It would solve our water problem in California. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, it, it, if I were to come back in, in 10,000 years' time and find no carbon-based humans at all, but only, only robots, I, I think I would mourn a bit, but I think I'd also be quite fascinated. I mean, I think it's, I, my emotional reaction is torn there. Thank you. Um, I'm going to slightly rephrase this question. Where, does, where do ethical values um, and moral compass come from for an atheist? Well, they come from the same place as they come f from for a, a religious person, because uh, it's just nonsense to say that ethics and morality come from religion. People think they do. But if they did, we'd all be stoning adulteresses to death, and we'd be whipping people for breaking the Sabbath, and, and things like that. We clearly do not get our morals and our ethics from religion. Uh, our ethics, our morals today are 21st century morals. Uh, we all have moved on from the morality of earlier centuries. We no longer believe in slavery. Uh, we now treat women as equals. Um, we uh, are, are demonstrably much nicer than our forefathers were read Steve Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature or Michael Shermer's The Moral Ark. Um, we, we, our, our morality is 21st century morality. And uh, you can date the moral values of uh, a decade as different from any other, other decade just, just by looking at it. If you read fiction, if you read um, just ordinary pulp fiction, say thrillers, detective stories, Agatha Christie, uh, that kind of thing, uh, from the 1920s, you will be shocked at the, the racism and the sexism that's there. We move on decade by decade by decade. Uh, we, we move on. We are, um, our morals are clearly labeled by the decade in which we live. They're not labeled by the holy books that we, uh, we have studied in in childhood. We don't get our morals from religion, and thank goodness for that. If we did, we'd be behaving absolutely appallingly. Um, 
the, the other place, I suppose, other than scripture, where you might say we get our moral compass would be from being scared of God. Uh, and, and that's a pretty ignoble, contemptible reason to be good, just because you're sucking up <laughs> to, uh, you're, you're worried about the great spy camera in the sky that <laughs> not only sees everything you do, but, and who you do it with, but also um, reads your very thoughts. Um, so, no, we, we neither do get our moral compass from religion, nor should we. Marcus, um, here's a question, and I, I suspect I know the answer, but I'll, I'll let you give it a try. Can spirituality and atheism coexist? Well, spirituality means different things to different people. Um, spirituality. I can't remember whether Carl Sagan ever actually used the word, but if you read Carl Sagan's books like Pale Blue Dot uh, and Cosmos, um, you, you, you get an overwhelming feeling of one kind of spirituality. He had a, as I, as I do, he had a, 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 a feeling of wonder, so a feeling of swelling of the chest uh, when contemplating the cosmos, and I get it from that as well, and also from looking down a microscope, say, and you can define spirituality that way, or in an Einsteinian way, and then clearly spirituality and atheism coexist. Um, what atheism does not coexist with is, is supernaturalism. Um, supernatural where you actually say, we, we depart from science, we depart from the, the, the laws of, of science. Uh, so I think that's a semantic question, how you define spirituality. Yes, I, I always like to quote, as, as many people do, the last chapter of The Origin of Species, there's grandeur in this view of yeah. life, because I think that's also a, very consistent with your, it's your a, It's a lovely last paragraph, the last paragraph of The Origin of Species. I actually used it uh, as the basis for the last chapter of another of my books, um, The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, where I took each phrase from the last paragraph of The Origin of Species, there is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, etc., um, and made each phrase of Darwin's paragraph into a section heading of my last chapter, and so, so um, elaborated on the meaning of what, of what Darwin's phrase uh, held. Thank you. There is absolutely no question in every objective manner that you've had an enormously successful life. Do you have any regrets? I won't answer for myself. I'll quote the poet John Betjeman, um, whom I've already quoted. He was asked in old age, a lot older than I am now, he was asked, Sir John, do you have any regrets at the end of your long life? And he immediately said, not enough sex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Clearly, you have enjoyed today's program, and thank you very much. Brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Dr. Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist and author, Brief Candle in the Dark, My Life in Science. Dr. Lynn Rothschild, astrobiologist, synthetic biologist at NASA Ames. And our audience here in San Jose, those of you joining us on the radio and the web. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.
Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.